the Word of God that forms the basis uh, for our meditation is actually the gospel lesson. I'm going to have us focus on the verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us? This is our text. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, again, it is our privilege and opportunity to be brought together by you in this place where you promise to be with us, to teach us through your word, to confront us not only with the law but the gospel, to remind us of your love for us and how that changes our life, not only when it comes to uh, the direction and our purpose, but also when it comes to our passion. Bless us, Father, today that the evil one would not rob us of the joy of salvation, which is found in you through Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the things I wrestle with the older I get is I don't want to be an old guy. But it's hard not to be an old guy because I remember stuff. When I was back in college, there was this contemporary hymn or song. I'm not sure how many of you even know it. It starts out like this. It only takes a spark to get a fire burning. Those are the only words I know. Because I really didn't like the song. Not that there was anything wrong with the song. On a college campus doing youth work among kids, it was, it was magic. Throw a guitar in there and, and you know, having, you know, a... a, a population of uh, young adults that love Jesus. It was a very powerful way of doing evangelism. So, in our text today, we talk about a spark, or maybe more appropriately, a sense of burning that lives in the side the disciples who are on their way to and from Emmaus. I suppose the question I would like you to think about is, what kind of spark was it? What kind of fire actually got started? We talk about hearts burning, but that's usually because of acid reflux or something we've eaten. <laughs> that's not what it's talking about here at all. Hearts burning is, is it's talking about passion. It's talking about having a reason for being alive, for getting out of bed in the morning. It defines what we do and how we do it. I suppose I, I, I wonder, out loud, do you have a passion? Have you ever had a passion when it comes to Jesus? Have you ever had this sense of incorporating what he did for you to the point that you just couldn't be the same person you were before? I mean, sometimes when it comes to, you know, any one of the number of celebrations in the church, Easter suffers from the fact that a lot of these stories you already know. What am I going to tell you you didn't know already? What we're going to talk about today is this, this narrative that fits between uh, the narrative of, of uh, Jesus appearing to the disciples uh, on, the, on Easter Eve and the week after. We talked about that last week. But there's something about what was going on with these disciples in the afternoon and hours of the early evening. Now, to get our handle around it, we do have to address uh, a confusing part of language. Sometimes language can be confusing. At the very sign, it can 
same time, it can bring about great clarity. As an example, in life, there are many flames. There are many fires. But there is only one true fire, and that's what we'll talk about today. Now, the Greek language is very similar, in a sense, to the English language, because when it comes to this idea of burning, it depends what we're talking about. I'll just use the English, because I want to shorten the sermon. To kindle a fire. What does that mean? For me, it reminds me of the time I took my boys on a canoeing trip, gave them a pack of matches, kept one for myself, and said, let's see you start a fire, kids. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they thought that they could just put sticks on, light the whole matches at the one time and have a fire. I knew that wouldn't work because I'm a dad. So what did I do? I kindled the fire. I, I went and I found all this little dry stuff. Had a lot of it. Found real, real little small sticks that were dry. And I built this little teepee, little at a time. I didn't have big sticks on it yet. I just had the little guys. I put a lot into that fire before I lit the match. And when it lit, I went... I had just enough wind so the fire could start... And it could grow. Kindling a fire. That makes sense. But that's not the same as igniting a fire. When I think of igniting a fire, I think of taking a flare and throwing it on a pile of wood that I soaked with gas. Wow. Immediate. Intense. And hot. I tried it one time with just a match. That wasn't a good idea. Because what ignites is not the liquid, it's the fumes. <laughs> wow. Think of b burning when it comes to water. What, what word do we use? We use scalding. Boiling hot water that hits your skin, it scalds it. Or when you think of cooking on the barbecue, you think of the word sear. Burning happens when a hot metal object, uh, the meat is put on top of it, and you sear it. You get those beautiful little lines in your steak. You flip it over, and you want to have those lines match up real cool. That's searing. It's a burning that happens when you put a piece of metal at a very high degree in contact, especially with skin. So what kind of burning are we talking about when we look at these two disciples that go to and from Emmaus on that first Easter? Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us? What kind of fire was going on in their hearts? What kindled that fire? What was it that inflamed them to the point that once Jesus left their presence, they could not stay where they are. They went back to Jerusalem in the twilight hours where the robbers and the, the bad people lived along the roads. They risked their lives to get back to tell the disciples what had just happened. What is that burning sensation that they had? Well, let's be frank, if you can. There are a lot of things in our lives that can cause our hearts to burn. And again, I'm not talking about acid reflux here. I'm talking about something akin to passion, excitement, something that gives us pause. 
I mean, there are a lot of entertainments and diversions out there, and they have a tremendous appeal. Right now, if you pay attention to what's going on in the culture, you can see it real clearly. We have a divided country over any number of different issues. Both sides of these issues are empowered by a passion of rightness. I'm not going to listen to what you say until you listen to what I say. Well, of course, nobody's listening. Things are polarized. Everybody yells at each other. Nobody likes each other on the opposite sides of these lines. We're not building any kind of continuity or worthwhile conversation because of this burning. Maybe a little closer to home, because I would like to think that none of you fit that particular mold. Entertainment is full of this kind of stuff. I mean, think about it. Watch a a Rambo, or better, Fast and Furious movie. They have some special effects in those things that it's like, so what? Did you see that that car went off the cliff, went down about a good football field, landed on all fours, and drove away, and nobody got hurt? That was awesome! How did they do that? Or they drove and they ran into a helicopter or stuff like this, and it's on the screen, and we go, whoa. It wasn't real. But in that moment, it was exciting. And yet that excitement fades. I could talk about the Chiefs. Some of you would maybe connect with that. I'm not so sure now that I look out there. Maybe I should have picked the Vikings or Packers or somebody. But let's do the Chiefs just for fun. I'm guessing that a lot of you may have watched the Super Bowl. And if you're cheering for the Chiefs, do you remember that wonderful call near the end of the game? Pass interference, giving us a first down. They scan over to to, uh, Travis Kelsey's brother, Jason. Jason, and do you see what he said? Ah, it's over. They're going to call plays like that. You could see it on his lips. But we didn't care. Ha! Ah, we remembered all the other plays. And then they didn't run into the end zone right away. And we knew we had it because the Browns did the same thing. And we waited out the clock, kicked the field goal. They didn't have enough time to score. But that whole time we're on the edge of our seats. What happened when the field goal went through and the clock went to zero? Yeah! Jumping up and down. The kids, I don't know, maybe you guys didn't do it from the looks on your faces. But I'll tell you what, people got excited about it. And what did they talk about the rest of the day and into the next week? And some are still talking about it. They're talking about the passion, the excitement they got out of that game. Do you know commercials do the same thing? Did you pay attention to these Super Bowl commercials? You know, the one that really gets me is the one about, it's about the puppies and the cats. Um, The voice of the, the person talking is subdued. And if you don't do anything about it, these cats and dogs are gonna die. We shouldn't let them. And by the way, we should not allow them to live in that environment. But the appeal is there in that moment. The commercial actually is long enough to try to build up enough passion inside of you to pick up the phone and donate. 
That's what it's all about. Now, these things are there. The problem is not that our hearts were warmed by them. The problem is trying to discern what warms our hearts for just a moment from what will last a lifetime into eternity. What out of the, all the many fires, all the many flames out there, what is the one true flame? So we have these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they encounter the one true fire. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We don't know why. Jesus approaches them, but they don't recognize him. In fact, they are kept from recognizing him, the Bible says, until Jesus explained everything to them. And we'll talk about that in just a second. In the conversation that follows, they tell the stranger all about what happened the last couple of days. Remember, we're talking about Sunday, Easter Sunday. The day before was Holy Saturday. The day before that was Good Friday. A lot of things happened there. And they begin to then unravel the story for this stranger who didn't know what was going on. They explain how the authorities conspired to bring about Jesus' conviction and ultimate crucifixion. They lament about how their hope for the salvation of the people of Israel is now gone because the Messiah is no more. And then they finally describe how some women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Imagine for the moment you're Jesus right there. Duh. He didn't actually say that. But do you understand why they didn't recognize him? Oh, what did I do? Oh, but they did not, but him they did not see. I found that to be interesting. Why didn't it say, but they didn't see him? It's particular in the Greek because the sea that we're talking about isn't just a visible eye, it's understanding. Remember, John got to the tomb first. He looked in, he didn't go in, and he saw or he believed. The women didn't until they were visited by Jesus himself. The disciples that evening didn't get it until Jesus showed up. Here, these disciples are telling Jesus, a.k.a. the stranger, what happened? And it's just funny that they were amazed by the story of the women, but you know, him they did not see. Now, this isn't the first time the disciples were amazed. They were amazed by his teaching in Luke 4, his ability to heal throughout the Scripture. I just happened to note uh, chapter 526 right after he healed the paralytic, which was a wonderful 
uh, example of his healing abilities. He, they were amazed at his control over the winds and the waves. You remember when they were out on the sea and they were buffeted, they were scared out of their gourd, and Jesus gets up in silence. They were amazed. They were amazed about his authority over evil spirits. 47 times in the, in the Greek you have uh, the word for amazed or amazement. And out of those 47 times, 37 of them are ascribed to the disciples or the crowds. The response to what Jesus did, the response to what Jesus said was amazing. What's interesting about Luke 9.43 is what comes right after it. While everybody was marveling at all that Jesus just did, i.e. the healing of the paralytic, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. When you compare the Gospels, there are at least four specific times where Jesus sat down and explained to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the teacher of the law, I will be persecuted, I will be crucified, and on the third day I'll rise again. And they didn't get it. They couldn't, they couldn't see it. There are two times in the New Testament where Jesus is amazed. First time is in Luke 7. Jesus was amazed, and I put that by the faith of the centurion so you'll remember what happened. The centurion came and said, I got a servant. And Jesus says, well, I'll go to your house. And he says, no, you're a man of authority. You just got to speak the words and it's going to be done. And he did. And the centurion believed him. And Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. He was amazed that a Roman centurion had this faith. But when it came to the people of Israel, not so much. And when it came to his disciples, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Sometimes we miss the implication and the application of God's plan of salvation. Even after we've been told again and again the same stories for the same celebrations, Christmas and Easter, throughout the year, we've been told, and yet we fail to connect the dots. This was also true of the disciples on the road to Emmaus that afternoon. Jesus told them where he was going just as God had told the people in the Old Testament that Christ was going to die, but he would rise again on the third day. Well, here it is, the third day in the middle of the afternoon. The women had told the disciples they had seen Jesus, but the disciples still didn't see him, and he was standing right in front of them. Now, what happens next is the source of the fire. Jesus 
holds a Bible class. And he opens up scripture to them so that they could understand and thus see. I wonder as a pastor, I wonder what he went to. Did he go to Deuteronomy 18? Here's the prophet Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. How many times did God the Father say, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Echoing what Moses prophesied so long ago. Maybe turn to the Psalms. I don't know if you know this, this might get you. This is David writing hundreds of years before Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're talking 48 hours has passed between Jesus on the cross. And here this could have been the statement. They knew Psalm 22. Did they make, connect the dots that this was the fulfillment of David's messianic prophecy? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Sound familiar? Jesus responds, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you go on in Psalm 22? A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. It's right there in Scripture. I can count all my bones. People stare. They gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. It's right there. They didn't make the connection. The real question is, do you? He goes to Isaiah, maybe. That's where I would have gone. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own ways, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Boy, if that's not the disciples or me, that I have gone my own way and I can't even see things anymore. Or the things of God that changed the world, changed me, somehow or another, don't matter to the the degree that they have in the past, I hope, or into the future. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. My goodness, if those were the scriptures, and I don't know what they are, I'm not claiming that I would know or speak for Jesus. It's this kind of talk, the connecting of the dots, the stepping back and 
looking at your life, not what was happening that Sunday afternoon while you're walking out of Jerusalem, away from all the disciples to some town named Mimaeus, mourning and grieving over what just happened. Even though the words were there, either out of Scripture or from the words of the women, they didn't hear it until Jesus opened their eyes to his word. And we know that the effect on the two men, and I pray on us, was that their hearts were set afire. There was passion. There was burning going on. They believe Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he is the risen Savior. They are filled with hope. They're filled with faith and joy. They beg him to stay. Don't leave. I know who you are. Stay here. We want to hear more. When he leaves, what do they do? They run to Jerusalem, seven miles away at nighttime. Nobody does that. But they did. Why? They wanted to tell the disciples in Jerusalem what happened. They couldn't keep it inside. On the one hand, it was too good to be true. On the other hand, it was true. They heard it, and now from God's word, they understand it. Sure, they were fearful. I mean, the rising of somebody from the dead, that just doesn't happen a lot. But Jesus, when he met with the disciples, did the same thing with them as he did with these two disciples. He opened their minds to understand Scripture. He gave them the Holy Spirit and sent them on a mission, a purpose, a reason, a passion to forgive and teach the forgiveness of sins to the world. Thus, Jesus opened their minds and warmed their heart as well. You see, life is not hopeless. You may have seen in, uh, in our uh, reading from Peter. Peter writes, We have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does that mean? It means that we don't walk alone to the grave. The risen Christ promises us, Because I live, you will live also. I'm not alone in my life. I have been created and set apart for a reason, a purpose, for a message that is bigger than me, and yet a message that I can understand by the grace of God as it's revealed in his word. So, when we go back to the old grind, we remember that he is risen. When we face, good one. When we face a, a seemingly unsurmountable pro- problem in life, we believe he is risen. When we stand at the grave of a loved one, we have hope because he is risen. When we find that our steps are heavy, we're getting older and tired, our spirits are sagging. Maybe our hearts are even becoming a little cold. We remember, he is risen. risen 
Once again, he walks with us. He speaks to us through his word. He opens the scriptures up to us in light of his resurrection that bring clarity to why God's plan of salvation played out the way it did. And our eyes begin to see life from God's perspective. Sad hearts are filled with joy. Troubled hearts are, are filled with peace. Weak hearts are filled with strength. Doubtful or hearts that despair are filled with hope. Lukewarm hearts are filled with conviction. Cold hearts, well, they start burning with faith and hope. When they see who Jesus is and what he did. You see, we know and believe that there is no sin that Jesus does not forgive. There is no hurt that he does not heal. There's no emptiness that he doesn't feel. Phil, he brings our hearts from a hopeless state to one that is conviction, empowering, motivating, abounding in joy. Jesus showed them in the scripture that all the frightening things that we like to focus our thoughts on, you know, they cause us grief, but they're actually a part of God's plan of salvation. Jesus' suffering and death is prophesied about. It's exactly how God intended to save. There's nothing to fear. Even death and resurrection are in God's hands. With this faith, the discipleship, the disciples caught fire. They got excited. See, it's the word of God that is this spark that's real. That isn't momentary as long as the commercial is going on or until the new season starts. It lasts for this life as well as the life to come. There are all kinds of things that can get you excited, but they're temporary. And I like to think you know that. I'd like to think that you probably were duped by a commercial. Or maybe at one time you actually believed that uh, a car could jump over stuff that it really couldn't. Maybe you actually believed in things that uh, later on you grew up to realize, wow, was I deceived. Your heart maybe got sin scorched, if not, maybe even burnt a little around the edges. It's our sin that puts God on the cross. It's God loves for us that raised him from the dead. And for his sake, he forgives us all our sins. The message of God's love can melt the coldest heart. And you know how I know it? Because it melted yours. And it melted mine too. In Jesus' name, amen.